Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you know, uh, the man you know you have now is not your husband and what you what you have is just a quite, what you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worship worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know, that, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am him. He. Thanks, Mike. <clears throat> Keep your Bibles open to John chapter 4. If you don't have one, there's a blue one in front of you. What we're covering, we'll cover pages 741. And 742, we want you to follow along. This is a really uh, intense conversation between Jesus and this woman. It doesn't always come through. So, Michael, thanks for reading that with such intensity. <laughs> I appreciated that. I'm trying to match you from here. Um, in fact, before we start, where's Paul? Paul Anderson, can you stand up? Paul, I just want to let you know in front of everyone, I'm, I'm just not feeling good. So could you come up here and do this? All right. <laughs> That's just about, I don't know, two hours more heads, or two hours later heads up than he got last week. So uh, I just wanted to thank Paul for, uh, for just stepping up at, at literally the last minute and covering me last week. I, I, uh, I was like, who don't I like? And I can give something really stressful to, you know. And I was like, Paul's a Pirates fan. This will work, you know. Um, but, he, man, he came through, and, uh, and I'm very appreciative of it. And, and, and I know that uh, there were several people who stepped up and took care of things they don't normally take care of um, because Adam decided to take a vacation when I was sick. So we can blame Adam for everything. Um, but this morning, John chapter 4 is going to be, and we're going to start, um, like I said, in, in there in verse 10 where Michael read. But a couple weeks ago, uh, stores were getting ready for Black Friday. And during that week, there was a couple articles I saw on the internet that were warning consumers of this, uh, this trick that stores like to pull. Uh, on days like Black Friday and other days that they claim they're having sales. And the trick is basically this. Let's say there's an item that costs $120 normally. Well, you get there on Black Friday and they have listed for you two different prices. They, they'll say the original price is $175 and the sales price is $115. And so you buy it thinking, man, I, I'm going to save $60 on this when really you saved 5 Because they lied what, on what the original price was. And so they're warning consumers about this because... I mean, that's a nice thing to do, right? Because it'd be a shame to, to get up early, fight through the lines, punch a stranger in the face, elbow someone's grandma, lose all ounce of dignity and humanity, and really only save $5 when you think you're saving 60 I mean, if you're going to elbow a grandma, at least save $20, am I right? 
to warn them of this fraud. And today, we're going to pick up a conversation between Jesus and a woman in which Jesus uh, will absolutely and ultimately warn her about worship in her day that's just fraudulent. It's just not the real thing. Okay, so for us to really understand where Jesus takes this woman, I want us to grasp a definition of worship that I'll admit to you at the front. It's too simple, but I think it can be helpful in us understanding what's going on in John 4. So we're, the way we're going to or define worship this morning in a way too simple way is that worship is any way that we try and approach God and make much of him. Okay, now we have ways to do that. You're, you're going to experience some today. Singing to him, prayer, reading his word, observing his sacraments like communion like we're going to do today. More. These are different ways that we approach God, uh, seeking more of him. And Jesus, in talking to this woman, will speak into the religious norms of his day that contained a whole lot of effort and a whole lot of angst and a whole lot of zeal. But at the end of it all, all, this, all the result of all this religious fervor lacked any real life change, any real hope. And just the fact that this conversation occurred, right, between Jesus and this woman in Samaria is already a story of grace. Right? Because all the social norms of that day would have told Jesus that as a Jew, he should have never even went into Samaria. All the social norms of that day would have told Jesus that as a man, he should never speak to a woman who wasn't his wife. Because Samaritans were hated and women were seen as lesser. But Jesus didn't care what anyone else thought he should do. So he, had this, he has this privilege of being the Lord of the universe. So there is no authority greater than him. And so as Lord and creator of the universe, he knew that all humans have great value and worth. So he goes right where no other Jewish man would have went. He went right into the heart of Samaria. And he does exactly what no other Jewish man would have done And when he speaks to this woman when she comes to the well. And he asks her for a drink. And she's taken aback. She's aware of all these cultural norms, right? So she can't believe that he's speaking to her. He says, she says, wait, you're a Jewish male and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And so Jesus tells this woman, if you, right where Michael started in verse 10, he tells her, if you only knew the gift of God, if you only knew who it was speaking to you right now, you'd ask me for a drink. You'd come in running to me for fulfillment, and I would give you living water. And this Samaritan woman doesn't understand at all what he's talking about. Because she doesn't know who, he's talking, who she's talking to. She doesn't yet know what Jesus can do for her. So she misreads Jesus' answer and thinks he's talking about physical, actual water, right? And with that in mind, she's got some pretty decent questions in verse 11. She says, okay, how exactly are you going to get me this water? You, you've got nothing to draw with. You've got no rope, no bucket, no container, nothing. Right, and archaeologists have identified this well in Samaria as one of the deepest wells in Palestine. It's considered a, a, a feat of human engineering that Jacob, thousands of years ago, could dig a well this deep. And so what's happening is that at this point in the conversation, still early, but at this point in the conversation, Jesus is talking all about spiritual things, but this woman is not spiritual, not at all. And so everything that she's focused on is earthly and temporary. It's, it's right in front of her, and so they're not on the same page at all. Jesus is talking about this gift of God, this living water. And her response is, you got no bucket, man. But then unknowingly, accidentally, she asks a really great question. You see, during this entire conversation, Jesus will cover this woman with grace. It was grace to be there. It was grace to talk to her. It was grace to offer her the gift of God. It will be grace as he patiently and slowly explains all of this to her. Remember, uh, the conversation that John recorded before us in, in John chapter 3, that guy Nicodemus, for all that he got wrong, right, he was at least seeking. He was a, he was a coward. Okay? He came to Jesus under the cover of night so no one else would see him, but he at least came. He's the one who initiated the conversation. He was interested. He wanted to hear more. This woman just wanted water. 
And now this man she should probably hate is talking to her and asking her for water. And then, he, and then he's saying, no, you should ask me for water. And if we were in her shoes, this would be confusing to any of us. And so in her confusion, she grabs hold of something she knows, something dear to her. There's this strange man who's saying all these strange things to her. And so she's not sure who she is, so she's going to go to something she knows. Look at verse 12. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't even know the language, but the people who are that I was reading this week write that the Greek, in the Greek, the grammar is such that this is a rhetorical question. Right? Because in her mind, there's no way, right? Of course, this strange man isn't greater than Jacob. Because for all the hatred that, that they had for each other, Samaritans and Jews had a lot in common. And both, both of them saw their ancestry as quite important. And it was Jacob who built this well. It was Jacob who became the father of the nation of Israel. It was Jacob's 12 sons who formed the 12 tribes. It was from those 12 tribes that eventually came the Samaritans. And so, no, she's telling Jesus, you're not on Jacob's level. But you see, even in being wrong, for the first time she's taken the conversation in the right direction. We're going to find that throughout the book of John, Jesus often tries to get people to realize they're asking all the wrong questions. And he's trying to get them to ask the right ones. And even though this woman assumed the wrong answer, she asked the right question. Because the question is basically, who are you? And now we're getting somewhere. Look at verse 13. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whatever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling into eternal life. He tells her, you came here today to get water. And you'll drink it. And it's going to satisfy your thirst, but only for a little bit. And then tomorrow, you're going to be right back out here, and you're going to be drawing more water, and it won't permanently satisfy, so you'll be back the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and every single day after that until you die. And this well that Jacob built, that you're so proud of, that will never satisfy you because you're going to have to keep coming back because the thirst and longing will, never, will always return. But whoever drinks the water that I give them, well, they're not ever going to thirst again. Jesus says, I don't dig a well, right? Because you, when you dig a well, th this is what you have to do. When you have to come to this well, and you've got to bring tools, and you, gotta bring, you have to work, you have to, you have to bring a bucket and a rope, and you have to keep coming again and again and again. But my gift, what I give is free. It's eternal. It's lasting. There are no tools. There is no working. It's not a well you draw from. It's a well that springs up and overflows. The water I give springs up, pouring over them, quenching their thirst forever and granting them eternal life. He's describing for her what he does spiritually in the lives of people by using a physical metaphor. Humanity has always been religious, right? And so the time and culture that Jesus came to is no exception. In fact, in the region that Jesus lived and taught, nothing was more important than religion. It was what defined you. It was what defined everything about you. It defined the Jews. It defined the Samaritans. It was what they argued about. It's what they took pride in. It's what they let divide them. It's what they believed in more than anything else. It's what they placed their hope in. And Jesus is trying to get this woman to see that religion of any kind is just returning to the same well again and again and again and never being satisfied. New Testament picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 3. We're going to throw this on the screens for you. It says this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? 
For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. That's the Bible telling us there that even the Old Testament law that was given by none other than God to the Jews, even that was just a mere shadow of what God was going to do in Jesus. Even the Old Testament law was found to be lacking. Because for all the ceremonies in it, for all the sacrifices it contained, they all had to still be repeated again and again and again and again. They didn't ever fully pay the price for the sins of mankind. Therefore, they never broke down the barrier between humans and God. They didn't make a way for God's presence to come and dwell in sinful human beings. They didn't bring the intimate ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in all their repetitiveness, in all their zeal, they brought no peace, no clear conscience, no intimacy with God, no real lasting hope. And it's easy to see that without those things, it's no wonder human beings made a mess of religion. Because this lack of fulfillment, their, their thirst never being quenched, led to them doubling down on religion. Because think about it, right? Once I find something lacking in what it is I've put all my hopes in, then I do one of two things. I either bail on it completely, or I double down and chase it even harder. And what they had done is chased religion even harder. To the point now where Jesus arrives and the Jews have isolated themselves even more. They, they've kicked out the Samaritans all in the name of being religiously pure. The Samaritans then double down and they build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And guess what they do? They kick out the Jews to be religiously pure. And then the Jews add 700 additional laws to the laws God gave them. Because God's law apparently wasn't enough. And what they were doing is chasing the fulfillment that was never coming with religion. Religion was a drug that they kept going back at to get a hit of, only to wake up the next day and feel empty all over again. So by the time Jesus arrives, the entire region was marked by classes and prejudice and division and strife, and there was no power and little love and no grace. Right? The entire region was full of people who were pursuing religion with great zeal, but there was no peace within the hearts of the religious because it was all empty. It was all a bucket of water that ran dry every day, just like the water that she would draw out of that well. Later that day, that jar is going to be empty, and then what? But Jesus? Well, Jesus is greater than all that. Hebrews 10 isn't done talking about this. We're going to throw this on the screen. Hebrews 10 goes on to say in verse 10, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, Hebrews 10, 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And just like that, religion becomes irrelevant because one greater than religion has come. In Jesus, we have someone who can fill the greatest longing and voids in our life because he alone can bridge the gap between us and God. And by being our sacrifice and making those who believe in him perfect forever, the Bible says. And we are perfect forever in the eyes of God. Now God can take up residence inside of us. Now we have the promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now God's peace that passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds in and because of Jesus. Now we don't have to keep coming back to this well of religion and drawing a day's worth of hope at least. We don't have to keep coming back to the well of religion and working for reward that will never satisfy or last. Because in Jesus, we can be given freely out of his grace a spring of water that bursts inside of us, quenching our spiritual thirst forever, giving us peace when it makes no sense to have it, and granting us fulfillment and contentment with this life. I mean, this is why Nicodemus is wandering around at night looking for something different. It's why this woman is still confused, because they never experienced that. Never once in their life felt that. 
What I can do for you, Jesus tells this woman, is remove all the effort and all the division and all the strife that you've built into your life trying to chase a good thing but missing the mark. What I can do for you is erase your sin debt before God and give you eternal life. What I can do for you is give you a level of peace and fulfillment that you never knew possible. What I can do for you is make everything else irrelevant and lacking because everything else is irrelevant and lacking compared to me. And now at this point, he's got her interest. But she still doesn't understand. She says, sir, give me this water. And you know why? So I don't have to keep coming back here every day to draw water. Right? This is what she's thinking. This is great. I mean, it's kind of exhausting to come here every day and keep drawing water to the bucket just to drink. This would be amazing to have to do that. Think of how convenient that's going to be for the rest of my life. She's still not getting it. She's still seeing things from a completely physical and earthly perspective. But Jesus is patient and he's gracious with her. But I'm going to let you know right now. What Jesus is about to do to this woman in verse 16 doesn't look like grace at first. Okay, look at verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five of them. The man that you're with right now is not your husband. So what you have said is quite true. Okay, what was that? I mean, you can go ahead, you can read that as this kind of a mic drop moment, as, this, as him owning this woman. You can read it as him just trying to mess with her completely. And let's not downplay it, he is. That's what he's doing. Because once we understand what Jesus does here, we'll see the grace in it. He's been, you see, this whole conversation, he's been speaking to her about spiritual things. He's been talking to her about quenching her spiritual thirst. Now he's going to show her how thirsty she really is. And in order to do that, he needs her to see her greatest need. This is what he's doing. This is him saying to this woman, there's a reason you're out here at high noon drawing water, isn't there? See, it wasn't customary in those days to draw water at that time of day. Being a desert climate, it would get really hot and miserable and uncomfortable and draining. This is why Jesus is resting into water because he's just worn out. It's the middle of the day. So it was custom, it was typical that women would draw water from town wells at sunrise or sunset when it's cooler. The fact that this woman is coming out at the hottest point of the day suggests that she's actively trying to avoid people. Because her history would be seen as scandalous even in Samaria. She wouldn't be winning any homecoming queen contest. She's an outcast. And I want you to see the depths that she goes to to try to hide this. She's come out of the well to the well at a time of day when she expected nobody to be there. And then when that fails and, and Jesus begins talking to her, she, what, you look, she buys into the conversation. All her responses throughout John 4, they're relatively lengthy. They're multiple sentences, right? She's talkative. She's engaged. And then Jesus says, go get your husband. And she gets really quiet. Well, I don't have one. No explanation, no backstory. She doesn't want to go there. She doesn't want to talk about this. Right, she's going to talk all day about big picture religious debates. This guy wants to get her water that makes her life easier. Let's figure that out. Do you want to talk about my marriage history? We're not going there, sir. That's off limits. So imagine what Jesus' next line must have felt like to her. Her whole life has been predicated on avoiding this embarrassment. And if there's anyone you think that she could keep this secret from, surely it would be a man she just met moments ago. And then he says to her, yeah, you're right, you don't have a husband, you've had five. 
And that guy you're living with now, you're not even married to him, are you? See, this would not only shock this woman, but it would hurt. It would land heavy because she's a person with real feelings. Right? And though she's the one who's made the decisions she's made, she's also the one who carries the shame of those decisions. But the difference between Jesus and everyone else is that he isn't trying to shame her. He's trying to make her aware of her need. And if that has to hurt, then it has to hurt. Because the Bible is clear, not all hurts are bad. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 puts it this way. It says, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So what Jesus is doing, he's leading this woman to a place of repentance. He's leading her to conversion. He's leading her to new life in him. But there is no new life. There is no conversion. There is no repentance without there first being conviction. She must feel the weight of her sin. She must not sweep it under the rug and act as if it doesn't exist. She must have it put right in front of her face for her to see. She just see it for what it is. It's not justifiable. It's not irrelevant. It's not a few mistakes made by a good person. It's sin, and it's wicked, and it's an affront to a holy, perfect God. And man, do we need to see our sin for what it is. Listen, we don't run around as followers of Christ shaming others. That, that's worldly sorrow. That's what brings death. But godly sorrow is sorrow that comes from seeing our own sin, from seeing what we've done to others and against God, and it allows us to see our need for Jesus dying in our place. And when that hurts and feels terrible, but when it brings repentance, where we ask God to forgive us and give our lives to him, then it's that sorrow that leads to life and joy and salvation and heaven and a perfect eternity. And that's good, the Bible says. All along, right, this woman's focus was on the divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was on earthly things. It was on drinking water. And Jesus says, no, listen, it's time to make this personal. We need to look at you. And what you need to know is that I know. I know. And everyone who's here today needs to know that truth as well. Jesus knows. He knows. Those parts of your life that you think you've kept hidden. Those things about you that you don't want anyone else to find out. The secrets that you carry, the shame that you try to quell with vices. Every sin, every single thing that you've done wrong. Jesus is saying to you, you need to know that I know. I know. And listen, that can be terrifying news to you or it can be the best news you've ever heard. But if you had somehow believed that up until this point you were fooling God, right? That somehow you're going to get away with something, that, then yeah, that should bring fear this morning. You can't fool him. In fact, he sees right through you. There's not a word that's crossed your lips, not an action that you've ever done. There's not a thought that's went through your mind that wasn't known by God. And Jesus is laying this truth bare for this woman. He's, I know, he says to her, I know it all. I know everything. And her response in verse 19, before we get to it, think, just think about how much she must be reeling. And it can read, if you, honestly, you can take a skeptical view of what she asks in verse 19. It can read that she's immediately trying to change the subject. So I want to talk about her. But you see, I don't think that's what she's doing at all. I think she's genuinely seeking now. She knows that this man in front of her is no normal man, right? He clearly has access to God. He knows everything about her. And so she brings something up that I'm... I'm 
I'm certain she's wondered about before, and she hopes he can clarify. Look what she asked in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Yeah, I'd think so, right? Verse 20, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, so let me unpack what she's, what she's laying bare for him there. She said, okay, you're different. I can see that you have access to knowledge and God that I don't, so maybe you can help me with something. Because all my ancestors have told me that the only place that we can worship God is here on Mount Gerizim. Now, you Jews claim that the only place that we can worship God is the temple in Jerusalem. And that's a problem for me because I wouldn't even be let in the inner courts. Do you see what, you see what she's asking? Do you see the problem she's presented to him? She's taking the conversation in the only direction she knows how. The conviction of her sin has hit her, right? She knows that God knows everything she's ever done. And she's basically asking Jesus now, what do I do about it? Okay, I'm a mess. I've screwed up. Wait, that's clear now. What do I do about it? But even in asking that question, she's asking the wrong question because the question she keeps asking throughout John 4 is this, where? Where do I go? Where is it that I should worship? Where do I try to make this right? This has consistently been her question. Jesus told her in verse 10, I've got living water for you. And she asked, wait, where is it? Where do you go get that? In verse 18, he lays her greatest sins bare for her to see, and she asks in verse 19, okay, where do I go to do something about this? What's happening is this woman is trapped in the cage of religion. You see, there are trappings of religion that, that we can give different names to. You can call the religion whatever you want, but these trappings, these same identifiers have carried on throughout the centuries, right? Religion starts with a sense of the judgment of God. Right, when we believe or discover that, that God knows what we've done. And so there's this undefined feeling of guilt that we have about sin that drives all religion. And so what we do as humans is we build these systems of techniques and prayers and observances and rituals to try and rid ourselves of this guilt. She says, you Jews say the temple, we Samaritans say worship on the mountain. Others say pray five times daily facing one direction. Others say you need to meditate to remove self-denial or desire. Others say attend at least these two services every year or risk banishment from the church. Others say commit these sacrifices. Make sure you do this ritual. Do these things, right? And in that we both try and control and contain God. Because here's what happens. If we leave God on the mountain we leave him in the temple, if we leave God in Mecca, if we leave him in the church building or in the sanctuary, then he's both approachable when we want and avoidable when we want. So the human response to guilt to build religion is failing because even in our approach to God, we remain God ourselves. And Jesus will have none of it. Look what he tells her in verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now there are some really important truths in that. He tells her, listen, not every single belief is equal. Right? The Samaritans were treated wrongly by the Jews. Yeah, but you also got a lot wrong yourselves. And you're worshiping what you do not know. You're worshiping in ignorance because there's nothing in Samaritan worship that it's actually based on truth. So for all the zeal, for, the, for all the effort you put in building this temple on the mountain, it's all lacking because all of it lacks truth. 
But then twice, he tells it, two different times, there's a time coming and in fact is now here. The time that has arrived is Jesus establishing this kingdom of God and the kingdom will make both Samaritan and Jewish temples irrelevant. They simply don't matter. And by the way, that sounds okay to you, but that would be groundbreaking in that day. Jesus says, listen, it's time to lay aside the debate of which religion is the true one for the establishment of God's kingdom by Jesus will blow religion out of the water, revealing it to be as lacking as it always was. And the worship of the Father will no longer be contained. It won't be in one city or one mountain or one temple. The worship of God is going to explode all over creation because there are true worshipers, Jesus tells this woman, only true worshipers that worship in a way that God the Father accepts. And he defines it for twice, what true worship is. That true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. So listen, worship has no value if it's not based in the truth. And luckily we're told in the Bible what that is. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the truth. Which means that the only worship that God accepts is worship from a heart that recognizes Jesus Christ as Lord. And once that is in place for giving the Holy Spirit... And the Bible explains this in 1 Corinthians 12. It says, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God can say, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God within someone would never permit them or lead them to curse Jesus. And whenever you say that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says there, you do not say that by your own power. Because it's God's spirit that's revealed that to you. It's God's spirit that's confirmed that in your soul. It's God's spirit that's brought forth that praise from your lips. And only those, Jesus says, who recognize me for who I am and believe in me and therefore are given God's spirit will bring any kind of worship that God the Father will accept. That's a lot of religious terms, so here's what it means. We told you at the start that, that worship is our efforts to approach God and make much of him. And Jesus is telling this woman, it's no longer relevant where you go. It's no longer relevant what rituals you observe. It's no longer relevant what you keep and what you avoid. It's no longer relevant what style of music it is, how short or long a service it is. It's no longer relevant how good a person you think you are. If you were to approach God, it all comes down to one question. Have you believed in Jesus Christ or not? And that's it. The question is, what have you done with God's son? And this woman is standing there right before Jesus. And she still doesn't know who he is. She's trying to understand all this, and so she finally reveals where her hope lies. Look at verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, I know that the Messiah is coming, right? And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I'm he. There's one coming, the Christ, she says, and he's going to make all this clear. And when he does, you know what, my faith's going to be in him. And finally, you see, she's getting there. She's, she's right at the finish line because her hope has been transferred from where she goes and what she does and, to, and it's been transferred to who she believes in. And Jesus is going to bring her home. He's revealed her sin. He's revealed that he knows everything about her. He's taught her that re- religion is irrelevant and worship must be in spirit and truth. And now he's going to make it all possible by revealing himself to her. Guess what? I'm him, he tells her. The one that you're waiting for, the one that you're trusting, the one that all your hopes are, that's me. I'm your answer. Don't you see, dear woman, the one who knows everything about you is also your only hope. Yes, I know everything you've ever done, but I'm still here. I know every sin you've ever committed, I'm standing right here still talking to you. I know every bad thing about you, I'm still standing here offering you eternal life. 
See, we can be afraid that God knows everything about us, or we can be blown away by how much he loves us in spite of that. Because, yeah, he knows every dirty secret about you. He knows every flaw in your life. He knows every ounce of wickedness in your heart. And still he stands before you and says, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up in eternal life. He knows every single thing you've done wrong, and he still loves you so much that he died for you on the cross. Which means he knew what he was getting with you. He wasn't tricked by some fraudulent sale. He knew what he was getting. So if you're a follower of Christ, right, and you make a mess of things, you, you sin, and you fall back into something that's wicked, and you know what's wrong, Jesus never turned his eyes and go, what is that? I would have never died for that loser had I known he was going to do that. No, he's not ever shocked by you. He's never surprised by you. He knew what he was getting with you. Which means that when you confess that sin and repent, he unleashes his grace all over you again and again and again. And man, if you've never believed in Jesus, it means that there is nothing you've ever done that is so bad that is beyond his grace and forgiveness. And it also means there's nothing you've ever done that is good enough that you no longer need that grace and forgiveness. John 3 and John 4, we see two different people talking with Jesus, and they're both playing the game, even though they're playing it oppositely. Nicodemus came to Jesus, the one who was trying to show how good a person he was by all his religious actions, and Jesus saw right through it. Listen, if you're here today for the wrong reasons, Jesus sees right through you. If you're here because you think that being here makes you look good, Jesus sees right through you. If you're here because you think somehow it's going to put God in your favor, he's going to owe you a blessing this week because you're here, Jesus sees right through you. If you're here this morning because you think somehow your church attendance is going to tip those scales in your favor and you're going to be good, more good than bad, Jesus sees right through that. And when Jesus found this woman, she was trying to show how good a person she was by concealing and hiding all the bad stuff about her. And most of sin's power is found in secrecy. There's nothing we can hide from God. There's no amount of lipstick you can put on a pig. He sees and he knows. And so what Nicodemus needed to do was just drop the act. And what this woman needed to do was just drop the act and to come and worship in truth. The truth that, yeah, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve this. And yet you offer it to me anyways. To be drawn by the spirit of God to the truth of Jesus. So, so listen, to the believers in Christ today, the call for you is to become and washed anew in the grace of Christ. And so I want to tell you, if there's secret sin in your life today, you need to confess that. Not only to him, but to some brother or sister in Christ that he puts on your heart. You need to confess that today. Stop sneaking to the well at the middle of the day when no one else is there. Come into the light and find Jesus to be gracious again. To all who've been given water from Jesus that wells up in eternal life, that worship him in spirit and truth this morning and throughout this week. Sing of his grace. Celebrate his mercy. Respond to his goodness in your life with real gratitude, not fake stuff. And here in just a moment, we're going to give you a chance to, to come to the table and take communion. And as you observe that, I'm asking you to remind yourself that Jesus died for you and he knew every single thing about you. 
and he went to the cross anyway. Because that's how much he loves you. And I want you to let that truth lead you to a place of worship this morning. And for those who have never believed in Jesus Christ, then know this. He knows everything about you and he loves you anyway. And your hope for life, your answer to all your greatest questions, the satisfaction of all your greatest needs, the gift of forgiveness and eternal life in heaven can never be found in you. It will never be found in religion and it never will be found in you doing religious things, even coming to this church. This can only be found in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says to be forgiven of your sins before God, to be granted new life in him and eternal life in heaven. All you have to do is believe. Believe that Jesus is the son of God. Believe that he died on the cross for you and rose from the dead. And believe that enough that you want to live the rest of your life for him. We're calling on you to believe today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the harsh grace of Jesus. Lord, that reveals to us that all our efforts to hide our sin and all our efforts to cover them on our own power, they all fail. So God, if there's any in here today who, who thinks that they're just trying to do good or they're just trying to earn enough credit from you, they're trying to put you in their debt, that if they come here enough, if they, if they just do more good than bad, then you're going to let them in heaven and help them to see how failed that plan is from the start. God, if there's one here today who knows fully aware of the sin in their life and so far they've just tried to conceal it and hide it and think that maybe if they act like they don't exist, you'll, you'll somehow forgive it. Help them to see the failed plan in that. And Lord, may they realize that Jesus Christ is everyone's only answer. It's coming into the light and the truth, the fact that, that we don't deserve your love, we don't deserve your grace, and that's the key in finding it. It's once we recognize our need, once we believe that Jesus can fill it, that's when you come and cover us with grace and life and truth. And then we can worship in response. And God, I do pray for the brother or sister in Christ, God, who, who is carrying a secret sin this morning. And I know it, it'll seem scary to come into the light. It'll seem scary to, to somehow confess that to somebody here. But God, you already know. You're not surprised by it. You're not, you're not ashamed by them. You still love them. You still died for them. And so I pray that they would remove sin's power by bringing it out into the open. And Lord, as we come to your table, we pray that you would just do whatever you want to do in the rest of our hearts today. That we would worship you now in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> First Corinthians uh, chapter 11 says this. Verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Uh, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And uh, as Brett mentioned, this is your time uh, for self-examination, to bring your heart, bring your mind, bring yourself before the Lord. 
Um, and, and the body of Christ means that it's not always going to be easy. It means it might even be a little gritty. Uh, it'll be a little rough. Um, so what we're going to do uh, is give you an opportunity to have that time with the Lord, uh, to do what needs to be done. Um, um, and so we got two tables, one here, one in the back. And so what we'll just ask you to do uh, is I'll read a passage and you just make your way to the table. We're going to play a song. This is just your time uh, to, to follow the Lord's leading, to reflect on what you've just heard um, and to just get out of the way and let him work on your heart. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You come to the table, you take part in this, and let him work on your heart. Thank you.